and welcome to the Her Voice podcast. I'm Dr. Javade, founder and CEO of HerMD and your host for today. We're a female forward wellness center committed to empowering women through comprehensive health, beauty, and wellness services. Today, I'm so excited. We are talking with Cindy Eckerd, founder and CEO of The Pink Ceiling. We're going to hear her story from the creation of Addy, the first ever FDA-approved drug to treat HSDD to take on the FDA, and to talk about the female sexual health revolution. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you for having me. How are you today, friend? I'm doing well. I am doing well. Where in the world are you at right now? Right now, I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. It is hot as can be. (laughs) I'm indoors in the AC, though, so we're good. So I'm going to get into this, Cindy, and I know you've told this story so many times, but I think the reason is, is so many people are just awe-inspired by your story, and I think it speaks of resilience and finding your passion project, and I met you, and I could feel the energy off of you, and I was just blown away, and I'm so blessed that you are in my life. So I want you to tell me about your story and your journey to founding Addy, and why was this drug, this pill, why was it so important to you? Oh, well, first I need to say I feel the same to have you in my life, Uh, and you have ridden in the um, co-pilot seat with me in some of these meetings with the FDA, uh, (laughs) and meetings that you you can't even believe the things that are said. But, you know, I, I have been in this industry for a long time, so I had a very kind of conventional career at the outset. Um, and I was in, uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies where I loved innovation, um, loved the difference you can make in people's lives, and didn't necessarily love the companies, um, you know, how they ran and everything else. And and when I finally felt like I had enough of a track record of performance, even though I didn't have a rich uncle, unfortunately, I thought I could go out and convince other people, strangers, uh, to write me checks to build something of my own from scratch because of what I had been able to accomplish. And I started in male sexual health, and I was fascinated by sexual health in general. And the reason is, um, I think it's so integral to our human experience. Think about it. You know, sex is so important for so many of us in terms of how we show up in this world, connection, and yet it's still remarkably kind of taboo, right, as a subject. And I think it's a fascinating area of science. So I, um, I got into the male sexual health field, but I, nobody give me a, a badge of honor here. There are 26 drugs for some form of male sexual dysfunction, and there wasn't a single one for women. And that's what started really to ignite me. So I was very proud of, thank goodness, I had an opportunity. I learned how to build something from scratch. And then my really important work, I think, came calling, which was how do you take on getting the first ever drug for women's libido approved by the FDA? And boy, was that a roller coaster ride. But it, it was, I was ignited by this absolute disparity over how many treatments we had for men and nothing for women. I'm gonna say it a different way. Think about this for a second. For 20 years, you have turned on your radio and your television, and you have been told how sexual satisfaction leads to a happier, more fulfilled life if you're a man. If you're a man and whether or not we're conscious, even of that messaging, the absolute lack of conversation for women has told us the opposite story, that it doesn't matter. And when the science had emerged that told us what can unlock desire for women, 
I sold off that business and men and took it on. And thank God that you did because you have changed lives, so many lives. I don't even think you know all the stories because I would be sending you emails and texts every single day. But patients who come in and just say they felt dead or they felt invisible or they felt flat or they were broken and Addie has empowered them and given them their sex lives back. And it's truly a game changer and it's part of my arsenal when I'm treating patients because they're so relieved that when I tell them there's something, I actually have something for you that we can try. Well, how, um, how unfair that they feel because we don't talk about it, that they're totally alone they're ashamed. They have all the stigma, but they don't want to say it out loud, right? Because we haven't given them any space to do that from a societal perspective. And as you said, like the stories, while I was running the, uh, my, my first company, which was called Slate with the male drug, I spent a year just talking to women who have this issue. And over the course of that year, I heard about, you know, losing their sense of self, you know, huge self-esteem issues, body image issues, divorces mm -hmm. in many cases where they had lost, you know, the person they were closest to because that piece had left the equation of the relationship. Um, and so it, it just, it's so important um, that these women understand they're not alone. My God, you know, by the stats, 43% of women have sexual dysfunction. A third of them report low desire. If we go very narrow, it's at least one in 10 of us who have HSDD. And the fact that they haven't had a treatment, I don't know. That was, that didn't, that math didn't add up for me. <laughs> no. And when you think about it, you know, when I tell them and some of them are like, well, how long has it been on the market? I'm like five years and they haven't heard about it, but every single one of them knows what Viagra is. Of and course. Yeah, it's been this cloak of shame and isolation and guilt. And you're right, women don't have a safe place to talk about sex. So they're ending up in the wrong hands or, you know, they're talking about it with their friends over wine or with their hairdressers, which is fine. But, you know, to give them these avenues and to make them feel visible and to feel heard. You know, I've been working on this TED Talk that I've shared with you and come across some scary, crazy statistics. You know, women, oftentimes the delay in diagnosis, Cindy, is up to eight and a half years. Yep. Eight and a half years. And it's yep. not because a woman is delaying going in. It is from the onset of when she actually sees her provider. Yes. And sometimes women have to go to the doctor two to three times for every one time a man has to go to the physician. Yeah. And it, it's this gender bias and this dismissal. And it doesn't matter if they're seeing a man or a woman. It's yeah. just ingrained in our medical system the way that it is. I totally agree. You know, what, ha what became so obvious to me as I sat, so here's spectacular science. We, we understand from brain scan imaging, you know, PET scans, functional MRIs, that there's a fundamental difference in women who have HSDD than women who have, are content with their normal ebb and flow of desire. Right. But for a woman who has lost her interest in sex and it's causing her distress, her brain lights up totally differently when exposed to erotic cues. So I'm thinking just black and white science, here's the answer, but nobody's doing anything about it, right? Then I'm talking to all of these women and hearing the profound impact in their life, and, but here's their story. They're going in to your point and they're raising their hands and they're saying, hey, something's changed, something's different. And they're being told, oh, you're just stressed. You know, have a glass of wine. 
go on vacation with your significant other. And it, it is, it doesn't come from a bad place. I should say that. It comes from, again, this societal belief. So here's what I will say it is in the clearest form. When something goes wrong for men, we say, oh, biology, let's right. fix it. Something goes wrong for women, we go, oh, psychology. <laughs> and we pat her on the shoulder and we tell her not to worry about it. And you know, the truth is we're actually doing a disservice to both men and women yes. in, in how we handle that. But ex especially women, it just absolutely is unacceptable that we would imagine that when women walk into the bedroom, biology doesn't walk in with them. And right. we were just carving that completely out. I mean, what's the better example of that or proof of that um, than the fact that we had 26 drugs for men? Like, right. we feel like if a man is not having an erection, it is a national emergency. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. And listen, do I want them to have happier, more fulfilled sex lives? Of course. I would never not want men to have these treatment options that have been proven. Um, you know, they get to make the decision on risk benefit, but this is how it was treated from a regulatory perspective. So when Viagra came to market in 1998, it was deemed to meet such an important unmet medical need that it was rushed through the FDA in six months. Six months. You understand this. I mean, you're married to an oncologist. <laughs> it, it, this is a path that we reserve for life-saving cancer drugs, typically. Correct. We rush those through in six months. No, no. ED, six months. How long did it take the little pink pill for women, Addie? Six years. We had three times as many patients worth of data. That is the statement in terms of where we, society, see the, the relative value of sexual satisfaction for men versus how much does it actually matter for women. And women can't, we cannot allow that to stand. No, we, I completely agree with you. And women for a very long time, I feel like we're just seen as recipients or receptacles or just a tool in yes. a man's sexual life. And I agree with you. I think we need to make that clear is that we are not saying that men don't deserve the science or the funding or the drugs. Sure. We're just asking for equal access, equal visibility and equal footing with this. And, and yeah. yes, and I want um, other pharmaceutical companies to invest in women like you have and say, hello, we're here and we're here to stay and we're not going to be embarrassed and we're not going to be um, invisible or quiet any longer. Right. I got to tell you guys, that's the dirty little secret, right? It's not that companies don't see that this, the size of the population of women who have frustrating low libido is the same as the size of the population of men with ED. We right. all know what a big market that is. Companies do too. The dirty little secret is the path will be longer and the hurdles will be higher in women's health. That's the truth. It is why the investment dollars don't come. We both know this stat. Mm -hmm. 4%, one, two, three, 4% of investment dollars go to women's health research. 2% go to prostate cancer alone. Right. I mean, that is a staggering statistic, but what it is telling you, it's really just painting the picture of the story I just shared. Six months, six years, three right. times as many patients worth of data, different standard. So tell me a little bit more about this six years with the FDA, because that lights a fire for me. Um, oh my gosh. Because I know you heard no from them. 
Once or twice. So tell us about that, Cindy. Yeah. So, you know, here I was so proud. I finally made this very bold decision to take my profitable company in men that I had, you know, built from the ground up. (laughs) Finally, it was working and doing so well. We were actually doing exceptionally well. And I came to my board and I said, yeah, I'm going to sell this to take it, take on the first ever for women. And you know, they were like, what? No. (laughs) Are you crazy? You're going to do what no one else has been able to do, like the big companies, Pfizer, et cetera. And I said, yeah, we are going to do it because if we don't, no one is. And I really felt so deeply connected to all of the women who had shared their stories with me. And I thought, if I've listened to them, by God, so too is the world going to listen to them. And so I did actually, the board (laughs) went along. I sold off that business. I turned around to my shareholders who I'd made money and I said, okay, give me some of that back. We got to go again. Um, (laughs) Thank goodness um, they did. And, you know, to me, it felt like it was going to be such a straightforward path. I mean, you know this, it's double-blinded, placebo-controlled trials, you meet outcomes with statistical significance. It's just science, right? It's a scientific endeavor. And so, you know, here I am, I do all the the work. I sat down with the FDA, made sure I was clear on the roadmap. Okay, we get started. We start doing the work. We meet the endpoints. I'm just, and I'm literally thinking, okay, I'm getting ready to, you know, get the approval and launch. And we submitted to the FDA. They got a six month review when we submitted at that time. And, um, and they came back with a no. And I got to tell you, I mean, I was blindsided. I had done the work. I had met the endpoints. These were the endpoints that we had agreed with them. It was met with statistical significance. And that was, um, you know this story, but it was a Friday. I got this news. And I got it as I was landing back in Raleigh, flying in, and I sat down at the airport and I did not move from my chair. I mean, I really do think I just sat there for two hours, shell shocked. And the, the big pain for me was what in the world was I going to tell my team who blood, sweat, and tears were in this to change this conversation for women forever. I mean, they were pure heart on this mission. And I finally like picked myself up. I went into the office. I gathered everybody around our table and I gave them the news and really you know, everybody's waiting, well, what are we going to do? And I, I didn't know, like, I did not know what to do if I had done all the work and I still got to know. And so, you know, everybody went home to polish off their resumes that weekend, because what are you going to do? And I went home and honest to God, it's like, this was my intervention. A woman wrote me, she had been in our open label trials, meaning she knew she was on Addy. She was watching closely because she had been on the trials and was waiting to see the drug come to market. And she said, I want to, I want to meet with you. And she didn't live too far away. So I drove to meet first, by the way, I had to cry it out. So I took to my bed. I cried (laughs) the next morning. I got up. Thank goodness. I went to my email because I was so fortunate. Women wrote me every day. And this woman wrote me, she'd seen the news. I went and met with her and you'll know this. she came walking in that room and we had never seen each other. I didn't have a photo of her or anything. I knew it was her. And she comes walk, bounding over. She runs her own business. She has two beautiful boys. She's showing me pictures. And she adores her husband. She's been married for years, adores her husband. So by all optics, it looks like everything is going perfectly. But this issue is causing things to secretly fall apart. And she said to me, 
I have succeeded in every aspect of my life other than this. And I thought that is the portrait of a woman. That is the woman we just talked about who raised her hand, something's changed, something's different, who'd been told, oh, the boys are young, oh, just go on vacation. And I said, can I show you something? And I popped open my MacBook and I started showing her some of the MRI scans and how we know the brain lights up differently. And she was just burst into tears. And I thought, this is why I did this in the first place. It is for her, the validation, this is biology and we are ignoring it. And I gathered everybody back around the table on Monday morning and I said, we're gonna dispute the FDA. And I think the first reaction was, can you fight the government for sexual <laughs> pleasure? Um, it's from my team and I said, we're gonna find out. So, uh, so we took on uh, the FDA and, um, and it was just a remarkable roller coaster ride from there. Public meetings, you know, Nightline showed up uh, at our offices. Suddenly nobody who'd heard of this little company that could heard of us. And the good news is, women got a chance to speak. And when they spoke, and when the FDA brought in an expert scientific panel to review our data for the first time ever, it was on total public display, they voted overwhelmingly to approve the medication. So science won, but women won too. I love that story and, and I, it gives me goosebumps because those are the kinds of patients that I meet every day. But what I think you don't, and I've met your creative team and I love them all, I don't even think what you realize what you all have done with the images that you guys have put up on the website. I use that as a teaching tool in my office. You know, you can talk to patients about neurotransmitters and get into the science of it, but when you show them that image, right? Picture yeah. is worth a thousand words and their spouses are in there, their partners are in there and they see that. Cindy, they get it. It's like yeah. the biggest aha moment. Yes. It's the moment of relief. Like, it's not just me. There is something going on, you know, biologically that is, is causing this interruption on this, you know, magical balance we sort of need of neurotransmitters to respond right. to sexual cues. And the relief for women when they see that, who've been told, you know, all these ridiculous, uh, dismissive things. And I would say not only that, but their partners. Mm -hmm. Because let's be honest, for all of us, you know, there's a lot of ego around sex. Right. We all want to be wanted. And it's hard to imagine that if somebody, you know, is never responding to our, um, you know, our come-ons or our, um, they're never, they never initiate, they're never receptive to our advances, you do believe that it's just you. So I've also had really the privilege of watching the relief of a partner who now realizes that their, their wife has told them a million times or their girlfriend or whoever, like, I love you. Like, I am attracted to you. You're my person. I just never think about sex anymore. And they realize, oh, this is why. I mean, I hear so many stories of patients who are like, oh my gosh, my husband goes to the gym every day now. He's like convinced that I'm not attracted to him, but I am attracted to him. But I, I just, sex is like, I never want it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a common story.
I agree with you. Not only have we made a difference for our patients, but for their partners, because they do feel rejected. They do lose their self-confidence. They don't feel like they're desired or wanted, and they take it very personally. Right. And then it puts a lot of strain on the relationship. And um, so even though the men aren't taking the drug, it is making a big difference for them. And you know, there's all kinds of data that sexual health, it helps us with our confidence and sure. it helps us feel powerful. And oh, yeah. you know, when that's missing from the relationship, there's two people involved, no matter who's struggling with it. So yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I totally believe that owning it in the bedroom helps you to own it in the boardroom and, and make that wherever you mean in the workplace, in your life, like it really does um, transcend the bedroom. I mean, I always say if it's breaking down in the bedroom, it's definitely breaking down across the breakfast table, communication, all that is harmed in a relationship. But getting that back, the, the impact for just ourselves, for getting the relationship is huge. No, agreed. And I always say that sexual health is a barometer for how my patients are doing kind of everywhere else. So we're dedicating season two, talking about patient stories. And I know that you told um, that one. Do you have any other stories that you want to highlight or tell us about something that gave you goosebumps or even a letter or someone who reached out to you? Listen, I, 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 I get these letters still to this day. And I feel like I've had a decade now of and how lucky am I? You know, that's an embarrassing, <laughs> people don't necessarily want to bring this up and they're willing to share their most personal struggles with me behind the closed doors of their bedroom. But I have so many stories. I'll tell you one. I was on um, a stage in San Francisco last year and um, I got off the stage and I was rushing because I was uh, trying to make a flight and I was talking about this issue and, um, and this woman like, rushed like she rushed and she got right in front of me and I was walking out with a couple other people and she was like stop like you're going nowhere and um and I said okay and and like they were trying to rush me I was like no no let's see you like stop and she said I have to tell you I heard you on a podcast she said my husband and I were already with divorce lawyers Everything had fallen apart because we stopped having sex. And, and this is what was going on. And she said, and, you know, I all of us, like, everything rippled, right? Now I thought, no, I don't like him because he doesn't empty the dishwasher. No, I don't like him because, you know, all of the resentments kind of had come in. But she said the, the real kind of turning point in the relationship was this. And she said, I heard you on a podcast. I had never heard about this before. No one had ever talked to me about it before. And I thought for a second, what if this is it? And she said, I went the next day to my doctor and talked about it. I have this condition. I've been treated. And she said, and if you would, oh, I'm going to cry. And if you would take a picture with me right now, I want to send it to my husband because we're still together. It really does choke oh. me up. I was so <laughs> moved by that moment uh, when she said that. And look, I'm not, you know, I, I make no promises. This drug isn't a panacea. It has risks. It has benefits. It requires a conversation with your doctor. Not everybody will have um, the same effect. I have to say all of that because I wouldn't want to set an unrealistic expectation. But those kind of stories that come to me, they just, every struggle for a decade has been worth it. And, you know, it's so much a part of who I am and, uh, and what matters so much to me in terms of putting power in the hands of women. And I believe... Uh, you know, my radical thought is we have 
in a, the conversation around sexuality, we stopped in the sexual revolution at reproduction. And, you know, we, it's so political, even the reproductive conversation. And I think that what would happen, what would happen if we owned it all the way through pleasure? Because let's be honest, how often you enter the bedroom, how many times to, to reproduce? I hope always for pleasure. And right. if we'd own that, there would be this sort of freedom in this discussion. Um, and I think we would take away all of that control and everything that exists around sex. Um, so it's so meaningful to me when, when we turned on radio ads just this year, of course, right before COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Because I can't ever not have a curveball coming um, with this uh, with this product. But um, in February, we turned on uh, radio ads for the first time, and I sat in my car and I cried like a baby because it was ten years in the making for us to finally be publicly talking about this. No, and it's about time because I feel like you know we talked about travel, but I feel like despite what we see in the movies and here on the radio here. I feel like we're very far behind as a culture compared to other countries and their views on sexuality. You know, in residency, I, I'm an OBGYN. We learn about this much anatomy and we don't, I never, I learned about contraception, STDs, pregnancy. I never learned about pleasure or yep. orgasm or arousal or even sexual dysfunction. Yes. That came later, you know, with yeah. my own seeking it out and training and on my own time. But how, we're not giving providers a safe mm -hmm. space to learn about it. How, where are we allowing women to learn about their anatomy or what the disease state is called? They, the, the low libido sounds, you know, negative and they think they're broken, but HSTD, just like we changed the nomenclature for impotence, right? Sounds right. negative. Sure. Turn it into ED, right? It's palatable. We can talk about it. Yeah. And by the way, HSTD or it's, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, low, um, has been in the, in the medical literature since 1977. So but we don't know it. And you weren't, and I know you weren't trained on this when you were in your OBGYN no. story. I hear so often because who's the front line OBGYNs have women like, you know, raising their hand behind the door saying, hey, listen, I don't ever want to have sex with my, and they're literally having to go and like you did, you know, take coursework, educate mm -hmm. uh, themselves. And it's so important um, that we get there. I mean, to me, there's not only that we as women, we have to own it. We have to advocate for ourselves. We have to own our pleasure. But physicians, I think, need to add a question. And we've, we've talked about this, you do this, but not everybody does this. So let's, be, let's think about it for a second. If I'm in, um, I'm typically asked three questions about sex. Are you sexually active? Do you want birth control? Do you wanna be tested for STDs? You actually mentioned those as all things that you were trained on, right? So it's logical. Those are my three questions. What if we would add one question and say, and are you satisfied? we would actually change this conversation forever. One question would give permission to discuss this aspect of sexuality. And I think it's, it's just so simple that that's all we need to do to give permission to start discussing. And for me, for our patients, we see success because we send them to counseling and pelvic floor physical right. therapy. We address the pain. So a lot of times there's a multitude of issues going on. Yeah. And so you can't just expect, you know, the medication to fix the relationship always. You have to deal with the issues that have come up from the yeah. lack of intimacy. It all goes hand in hand. 
For sure. I mean, think about it from the perspective. You now have something that can that can address the biological issue. But in your relationship, you've probably created a certain dance. And mm-hmm. that is if every time your partner ever initiates, you reject, they stop initiating. Correct. So you may actually get on medication, be markedly improved, but they still don't know that this if they're gonna, you know, um, initiate, you're going to respond. And so you really do have to have um, that, I think, comprehensive look at that, at this is so very important. And I do think we do a terrible job. You know, the media dubbed this the female Viagra. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. I mean, of course <laughs> they did. You know, it's a delicious headline. Um, and contextually, it was the watershed moment. Like it broke the door open right. for um, treatments for women's sexual dysfunction. But it's not how it works. No. I mean, you know, it's an everyday working on, you know, a neurotransmitter balance. It's much more akin to an antidepressant in terms of its mechanism. It restores you back to a normal you once knew. It's not like zero to 60. You're not going to take pop one pink pill, go to the restaurant, see a hot waiter and take him home. Like, I'm just <laughs> say this to everybody that that's not happening. Um, and, uh, and yet it's so much, I think once women see the brain scans and they understand like restoring that balance so that, you know, when it is date night or, you know, you're, you're like, you're feeling it or you are having fantasies again and you're sending a sext in the middle of the day. Cause you're like, Oh, okay. That's the first thing I hear uh, from women who respond is they, they do say like, oh my God, like I had a fantasy. I can't remember the last time I had a fantasy. And that's just your brain, you know, that's your brain working the way in an animalistic way. Like we really are wired to want sex. Oh, and sex dreams. Cindy, I hear that all the time. They, they will tell me, I dreamt about sex again. I yeah. haven't dreamt about sex in like 10 years, Dr. Javade. And yes. I start cracking up and some of them share. And um, <laughs> one of them I love because you know I'm from Cleveland, right? I'm a hardcore Cleveland yes. fan. And um, this patient happened to be from Cleveland too. And she's giggling and I go, tell me. And she's like, <laughs> I had a sex dream about LeBron James. And I'm like, I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's so good. So... I am going to ask you about the business side of this all because I'm so glad you talked about tears because I feel as an entrepreneur, there are days where you ride the highest highs and then the lowest lows, but you've raised a lot of money from VC. And in 2019 though, female founders like me only accounted for 2.8% of all VC investments. Yeah. What advice do you want to give to all of us female entrepreneurs out there who are trying to raise some capital? Okay. I'm giving you two pieces. First of all, the fact that we think 51% of the population has less than 3% of the good ideas. Ridiculous. <laughs> Ridiculous. That math doesn't work either. Um, and actually, you'll be surprised. I raised none of my money from traditional VCs. Really? None. Zero dollars. Um, and I raised $100 million over the course of time. So I found different sources of funding. So this is my tip number one. Angel investors, high net worth individuals, family offices, It is as easy as you Googling angel networks in your area. Pretty much every town at this point has a group of high net worth individuals who like to be their own shark tank. Um, And there's opportunities to go pitch them and everything else. I highly recommend go on Eventbrite, whatever it is, they're doing that virtually now. So find alternate sources of capital. 
than, than traditional venture. You'll find more money in, with angels as a female founder. The second piece is I'm not telling you to discount venture at all. I'm not. Um, what I will tell you is you need to remember that you're choosing to. And that can be really hard as a founder. You know, you need that money to scale. You've got to be capitalized. And sometimes if somebody's offering the check, we're like, oh, yes. Um, but when you go into these rooms, if you're going to go into the room and you're going to be sitting across from, and by all the stats, this is what you're going to be sitting across from, a sea of blue and gray suits of, of older gentlemen, and you're pitching them female Viagra, <laughs> you better say to them, hey, I need you to have women in the room who can relate. And we don't always ask in advance and we deserve to because we're choosing to. So let's just forget that, the, that we want to feel like they're overtly biased against writing us checks. We're all human and we, we invest in those things we relate to. I like to flip it on me. If somebody came to me, I'm not a golfer. I don't know if you're a golfer, Sonia. Are you a golfer? No. Um, I'm not a golfer. And um, if somebody came to me with like the next greatest invention in golf and they told me, I would be like, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, all right. I, okay. And if they said, Cindy, I have the next greatest invention in golf. Do you know any golfers? I would say, sure. Will you bring them in the room with you? Okay. And I sat in the room, they pitched me, and every one of my golfing friends said, holy crap, this is going to change the game. I would be like, okay, where's my checkbook? So part of the flip, you know, as we're raising money, just demand that people be in the room who can relate to what you're pitching. Got it. I love it. And then you said you're on a mission to make women rich. I yeah. love that statement. You got to tell me more about that. Well, um, you know, after I um, exited, I sold the business for a billion dollars. It did, wasn't a billion dollar happy ending. Uh, the company that bought it never launched it. I fought them. I got it back. Now I've launched it. Um, but I have taken the money that I made out of that to invest in other disruptors in women's health. And I thought to myself, you know, we talk a lot about women needing a voice. Women need power. And money is power. Money is power to do great in this world if you choose to use it this way, but you can invest in those things you want to see and you can create meaningful change that you're not walking into a room and only sitting across from a sea of blue and gray suits. That's, those are not the only people making decisions about what matters. And so that, you know, that's been it. My favorite thing of everything I've done has been the multiplier effect of ownership. You know, everyone who has worked for me and my companies has skin in the game, they have shares, and to watch the meaningful difference it has made in their life in terms of how they can, and I'm so proud of all of them, like do exceptional good in this world. Uh, it's ridiculous that 2% that of dollars go to women. Um, and, you know, I just, I like to bet on the underdogs that everybody else is overlooking and then watch them get to, you know, massive exits and everybody change their mind. I mean, I love to call, listen, I call the guys um, in Silicon Valley who laughed me out of the room and I, I, and, and I say, hey, you should really look at this. I've given you a billion reasons why you should. And they know, <laughs> right? I mean, there's a guy who is really an elder statesman. I won't name him. And he came, he came to visit me at the, the pink evader, the pink ceiling. He comes, he sits in my boardroom and he's in his gray suit 
like dressed to the nines. And right before we started meeting, he, he, he kicked his leg up and he pulled his pant leg up and he had pink socks on. You lie. (laughs) And you know, it was a little bit of like the tip of the hat. And this gentleman is like the quintessential and we've changed his mind. And now he invests alongside of me in some of these opportunities. That's how you make the real and lasting change. I love that, Cindy, because as I'm on this mission, you know, I've met people like you who have mentored me and helped me along the way. And I've met so many other young female entrepreneurs and they have some great ideas. They really do. And I, they just need to meet people who will help them elevate their ideas and their companies. And I love the fact that you are helping other women do this. And in the process, they can get rich. Um, (laughs) That's, That's the goal. And then invest in the next group and invest in the next group. Everybody who I invest in um, through the Pinky Bader agrees that they will mentor and champion the next group. And if I get them to those outcomes, they're going to be putting their own money into this um, system. You know what I mean? They're going to create this extraordinary multiplier effect. You have like the pink effect on everybody. Um, I'll never forget when you and I were walking into the FDA and you had your hot pink shoes on. I was like, you go, girl. That's right. My, uh, you know, um, Josephine, who I work with is an attorney who's such a dynamo and she always is dressed like perfectly. Um, and you know, often in her black pantsuit or whatever. Um, but she, she'll, she also kicks up and she's got on hot pink stilettos and I'm like, that's right. That's right. (laughs) I love that. Cindy, thank you so much um, for taking the time to uh, talk to me and to all of us today. Can you tell listeners how they can find out more about Pinky Bader and Pink Ceiling and how they can well, get in touch with what's happening? Of course. Thank you for having me. And thank you for you know, being such a champion in this space. I'm so grateful you know, to everybody who truly advocates for women day in and day out. Everything that you know, I aspire to do is about putting power in the hands of women uh, to make their own decisions. And so you are such a, a light in that space. So thank you for the work that you do. For anybody who wants to follow, I hope you'll follow me at Cindy Pink CEO. I swear that I'm faster on my DMs on social than I am on my emails. I don't know what that says about me uh, these days, but, um, but it, it, it's true, that kind of communication. I answer all my DMs. And, um, and you can find us through thepinkceiling.com or the Pinkubator, either one. And we do have a place there where you can um, submit if you want to pitch us. I love that. Thank you, Cindy. This episode of Her Voice has been a production of HerMD, a female forward wellness center in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can follow HerMD on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerMD Health and sign up for our newsletter at hermdhealth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll share it with your friends. They can listen to us on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're a healthcare provider who is interested in opening a HerMD location, or if you already have your own practice and you'd like to be powered by HerMD, reach out to us at info at hermdhealth.com. 